don't hang on to the negatives or concern yourself about somebody else's view that you can move on from. Alfie, how do you feel about the term the media give you as Britain's richest gypsy? Any PR is good. <laughs> so whatever, you know, tomorrow I'll be Richard's poorest gypsy. Who knows, you know. Uh, but uh, it's, you know, that, if that's the tagline that they're using, I'm happy to accept it. And there's rumours that you're a billionaire. Yeah. They're all calling you a billionaire. Is that true? Right. Let me tell you uh, the complete truth. Our company on last count, and I keep a running chart. I live in the real world. So I actually state and work out what we have if the fan fails. That's a polite way of putting it. Yeah. And as of yesterday, our value was 805 million pounds worth of assets. Wow. That's property, helicopters, boats, that's everything. That's the whole shooting match. Yeah. Now, and we have eighty-five million pounds worth of debt. So that's our that's our debt. So if you minus that down, we're at sort of seven hundred and twenty-five or seven hundred and twenty million. The reason that they get to a, a, a billion pounds is because I don't add the goodwill to our business. So I don't add what the value is of our business. Now, um, if you take, for instance, that our business is growth, not profit, the profit was like 22 million pound. The growth of the business, year on year, for the last five years, has grown by 70 to 75 to 80 million pound every year. How that's made up, and I'm sorry if this is a long answer, but it's an honest answer. As long as you like. <laughs> no, but it's an honest answer because I think it's important for entrepreneurs and for business people to know on how you value business. Now, when you're selling your business, you value your business at times income, but not only on times income, what the asset base is worth, and on top of that, what the growth profit profitability is for the future. Those three things come together. Now, if you add our company at a growth of £80 million per year, that would put the value at somewhere near £1.2, £1.3 million. If you ask me, it's £725 million Because tomorrow, if the chips are down and I need to go, hold on, the fan failed, we need to cash out, that's what we've got. Yeah. And that billionaire status, is that something that's important to you or not? Of course it is. Of course it is. Um, and so is being a double billionaire, a triple billionaire. It's, a, it's very important. And why is it important? It's a scorecard. It's not about the money. It's a scorecard, no different than doing a puzzle. Once you get addicted to doing the puzzle, you want to do another puzzle and you want to do a harder one and a harder one. And that's what businesses are. Business is about puzzles. And nobody wants to get used to doing the same puzzle, do we? Oh. We want to make a difference. Yeah. And that's what makes it enjoyable. But we must never take our eye off of where we're going. And the reason that I'm 
what I believe to be a realist, I don't mind talking about money. I don't mind talking about debt. I don't mind talking about assets. I don't mind talking about business. Because I think, and I've said it before, Rob, when we've spoke, it's people like yourself. You're doing great things. You know, you're a success beyond belief. But you're giving so much credit to so many, and I've watched a lot of your podcasts. This is not me rubbing your back. You're giving so much credit and you're doing a lot more than just podcasts. What you're doing is showing that business is real in this country and it's to be celebrated. Do you understand what I mean? Mm. We're, there's not enough people singing from the rooftops. Who, who have we really had as business people that are out there? And there's only two that I can really think that have you know, waved the flag for us. And that's Richard Branson and Alan Sugar. Mm. You know, for me, we've got so many other great entrepreneurs that seem to want to hide. I did, um, I did a podcast um, the other day, and uh, I said to, to the guy on there, I said, people seem to hide the fact of success in our country. We're not allowed to celebrate it. It's boastful, it's vulgar, it's rude. Well, I'm sorry. If it's vulgar and rude, put up with it. Because I don't want to stop being successful and I want more people to be successful. That makes our country great. Isn't that what we're about? We need to put the great, all of us, in Great Britain. And why do you think there's this UK culture and attitude of stay quiet, be humble, don't brag, don't talk about money, on maybe a social level, but also there seems to be on a government level, a lack of focus on business and success. Why do you think that exists in Great Britain? Okay. We still have a lot of the stiff upper lip of where the country is based upon which of the old school ties did you go to, my good fellow? <laughs> and uh, did your family uh, go to that school as well? And uh, what industry were you in? Do you understand? Yeah. Not, things were difficult for us. We had to scrape from the barrel up. But luckily now the barrel's a quarter full and we're building on it. There's a glass ceiling. And it's only just starting to be recognised. And the reason it's only just starting to be being recognised is our government is actually starting to become more diverse. Now, for the first time in history, we had a woman Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher. Now, potentially, we could end up with an Indian Prime Minister. How great's that? Because it really shows that our country is becoming diverse. And I think that will, that will make a big difference. Now, creed, colour or race is irrelevant to me. It's good person or bad person, and they exist in every creed, colour and race. It's the person, not the people. So I think that could 
actually, because look, if we take Boris Johnson, and by the way, Boris Johnson doesn't get the credit for what he's done. He's done some great things. He took the poison chalice, what nobody else, two other prime ministers, virtually walked away from Brexit and just bullishly pushed through, got it done. Rightly or wrongly, that was the poison chalice he was given. And it, there was one time in the history of our country that both parties should have come together, or all parties, should I add, come together, was at that point. And we had people like Jeremy Corbyn that were turning around and trying to score points. I actually felt like going down to Parliament for one point in my life and going, get a life. The British people need to deal with this. Our country needs to deal with it. But yet they still wanted to score points. There was just that one point I felt in the, our entire history that we should have come together. Do I think Brexit was the right thing? I voted against Brexit. Am I for it? That's what we voted for. Get on with it. Don't cry over spilt milk. It's done. Let's move on. Then all of a sudden we've had COVID. Do I feel that he dealt with COVID well? Actually, no. But he still dealt with it. He got on. He's a man, no different than me and you, that is in office taking advice from many people around him and then having to make a decision. And he's got a lot of people looking at him. Do I think he's made some bad error mistakes? Of course. Like what? But haven't we all kept his own house in order? Hmm. You know, sacking um, Michael Goff the other day because Michael Goff said to him that he should step down. To me, was a poor, poor mistake. That's like me giving you criticism and you not being able to take it, Rob. Or you giving me criticism and me not liking it. Isn't criticism within your own team good advice? Especially when it's from somebody you trust. He must have trusted him, but bring him in inside his trusted circle. Mm. So for me, I felt that was, but who am I? I'm just a humble gypsy that's been taglined looking at the government. <laughs> well, I haven't got any political questions really on my list, but I think we're going to open up a couple. There's two more things I want to pick up on before I move on to talking a bit about the state of politics. Um, and that is, you said... You, can I just stop you just one minute? You can minute. do whatever you want. Now, you know that I nearly got in Parliament, don't you? Yeah. I nearly pulled the caravan outside the front. <laughs> <laughs> Well, my friend, my friend Al Barrett took his tank down to Parliament. You should, I was just thinking you should have taken a caravan down. I'm joking. Yeah. yeah, well, let's talk about that in a minute as well, because I don't think there's enough small business representatives. In fact, um, we're going to see Matt Hancock later, and, and he was Minister for Small Business, but that role seems to be confused. Anyway, let's talk about that in a moment. Um, you said assets including helicopters and boats mm -hmm. are helicopters and boats assets depreciation assets yeah but what i would say to you is and this is not a cop-out question okay um there are many depreciation assets and you must understand the difference but i've seen you um speak about it before not many people know what depreciation assets are and i remember many years ago and I'm talking when I was 
eight years old. And my dad is a worker. He's not a businessman as such, he's a worker. And we were sitting watching the TV and uh, there was this um, television program. And it was about a guy that, uh, it wasn't the lottery he won, but he won some sort of fortune. And he's a young guy. And he goes out and buys a brand new Ferrari, goes out and buys this stately house. And um, what else? He bought something else. Well, it could have been a boat. Mm. And I said to my dad, I went, wow. I went, I said, I understand. I was only young. I said, I understand, Dad. I said that he wants to enjoy it, so he's bought a nice car. I said, I think I'd do that. I said, and I get why he's bought the house. I said, and that's a great asset, Dad, because even then I knew the difference, but what an, or I knew what an asset was, even then. My dad said, son, he said, he will run out of money. He said, because it's one thing buying those assets, it's another thing maintaining them. He said, money, and my dad said this, he said, is a fixed asset unless you're adding to it. He said, but worst of all, it's a depreciating asset. He said, and very few people know that. Mm. And coming from my dad, this is like the prime minister giving you a lecture because he doesn't say much. Yeah. So I was blown away by that. And that stuck with me. People forget money is a depreciating mm. asset. And that's why. That's you, why the banks lend your money out. The banks course. know cash is a depreciating asset yeah. or a liability. So they take your money and they invest and lend it out to protect it from depreciation and inflation. Well, money is the biggest con in the world. Money is the biggest con in the world. It's the only thing. Money, forgive me for saying this, and I'm going to get slaughtered. You don't seem to care. (laughs) Do you know something? It's a view. Yeah. If people don't like my view, I want to hear theirs. You don't see me criticising them, but Mm. it's my view. Money is like religion. It's seen, it's heard, it's spoken about, and it's spent. But what is it based upon? It's based upon what we're told. We're told that there's this reserve of gold, but we've never seen it. We've told this reserve of gold is mountainous, but we've never seen it. So my point is this, money, money, I stick to money. It's the biggest con in the world. And that's why you don't see anybody running to embrace cryptocurrency. You know, we get onto cryptocurrency. I'm a fan of cryptocurrency. I've got to be honest with you, I'm not a fan of it in the form that it's in. Do I think it's a tradable asset? I know we're jumping all over the place here. Do I think it's a tradable asset? Your shoes are a tradable asset. As in Nikes are making seven and 18 and 20,000, a pair of Nikes. A pair of 80 pound trainers can make 20,000 pounds. Hyped up. So it's about how stuff is hyped. Mm. Bitcoin now, I think, is $18,000. Or is it back up? I don't know. It's low. It's I know it was yeah. at 45000 Two thirds down from its peak, yeah. So, you know, it's ba- so basically what that tells you is trading on hype. Mm. And that leads me to my, forgive me, I'm excited. 
that leads me to my next point. What um, I'm not a negative person, I'm a positive person. I believe in being half full than half empty. So, and I said to somebody the other day, I said, would you rather be half full or a quarter empty? And he said, well, I'd rather be half full. Now that's a positive person thinking, because actually you'd rather be a quarter empty because there's more in the glass. Do you follow me? Mm -hmm. But the positive person will always take less to do more with it. Recession. I think if we're not careful, this will be the worst recession we've ever seen. Here's the reason why. In my view, cryptocurrency is an unknown quantum of no matter how much of an expert you are. And I've sat down and I've listened to so many experts in it that know their field. And what I can take from every single one of them, they're trading on hype. Every piece of cryptocurrency is trading on hype. And I have one question, which I'm going to answer my own question. In my view, is cryptocurrency a long-term tradable asset? And the answer is yes, but at what level? And that we haven't found out yet. Are NFTs a tradable? Now I'm going to be honest with you, I think NFTs and virtual worlds are going to be the most exciting product to be traded in history of us. And I'll tell you why. It's this close to the real world. It's this close to the real world. I went to the Dubai World Show. Did you happen to go, Rob? I've been, yeah. Right. Did you go into the Saudi Arabia by any chance? Mm. It's rather big, so... Right. It's, it's a massive <laughs> yeah. show. Right, okay. I was blown away. You're not talking about this new city they're looking to build, are you? No. No, okay. I'm looking about, they put on a pair of glasses and they take the glasses off, put them on, take them off, put them on. And they walk you into a square room that leads into other rooms. But the room is a concrete cell. It's a prison cell with the worst doors and handles and steps. It's just a concrete prison cell with another room and another room. And actually there's a bit of water at one end. You put the goggles on, you've walked into a palace, but you actually open the handle door because it's there. But you're not seeing this cruddy, cheap, nasty cell. You're seeing the most salubrious room you've ever seen. You walk through another door and there's the sea. And you touch down and you touch the water, but you're touching the water. I was so taken back because after three minutes, I thought I was there. And what I've realized is that's where people are gonna be holidaying. That's where people are gonna be taking breaks. This is, frightening because it's so sci-fi fiction 
But yet I went there and lived it for a short period. I think that is really mm. exciting. All right, we might come back to that then. Um, so, Sorry if I said No, no, it's all good. This is Sorry. great. This is your show. So you said your helicopters and boats are depreciating assets. Does that mm -hmm. mean they are an asset in a company on a balance sheet and therefore you can write off the depreciation and improve your tax position? Not for me. How I work is this. The helicopter for me is genuinely a time machine. And when I say that, it, it frees up my time. Yesterday, um, I was in Northumberland, in uh, Yorkshire, Cumbria, and Bedford. That would take me two days. The day before that, I was in Holland and Belgium and flew back. Now, my machine is uh, quite a, a fast, big machine. What's the model? It's an EC-130 yeah. Aston Martin Airbus. So it, it's, it's got all the bells and whistles to do the job. And it is purely, I, I firstly I don't have the time for social events, but it is a business machine. I use it there. I don't even have time to charter it. I don't charter it. The reason I don't charter it, it's there. I want to go and visit a park. Now we're looking at now expanding into Belgium and Holland with parks because it's you don't realise how close it is mm. in a helicopter. It's only that water line that stops us mentally. You know, it's no different than going to Wales or Scotland mm. because the laws are slightly different. The only thing you're up against is the language. But in Belgium and Holland, they're all fluent in English. So I find it... Yeah. You know, that's the next step. Um, the boat. The boat's something that we've bought within a company to charter it. Has to be. And it's a business that I'm dipping my toe in the water. Everything I do has to be for the end result. Is that something that I think that we can profit from? We're actually already profiting from it. But I don't kid myself. I look at these things as depreciating in assets. Now, that leads me back to the recession and the climate that we're in now. I was offered 400,000 euros more for the helicopter than I paid for it. I was offered 800,000 pounds for the boat more than I paid for it within the last two months. But if I want another one, helicopter's gonna take two years, the boat's gonna take three years. So I've got to weigh up, do I now sell it? And let me tell you, my view is, somebody offers you a profit, sell it. Don't, profit is key. Yeah. So I, I then decided both of them would be put up for sale and I increase the price. And if they sell, they sell. If they don't, they don't. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> it is crazy times at the moment. It's like houses. Your house price goes up, great, you've made a profit. But if you sell it, you've still got to buy another house and you're paying premium for the house. Yep. And the reason that your helicopter and boat have gone up, which is unusual, Very. is because there's limited supply and that would be your problem if you sold them, yeah. trying to buy more. Um, 
Okay, so I want to talk about um, your son and his watch business in a moment because he must be doing very well because watches have gone mad, mm -hmm. mad. But before we do, you said money's a con and I didn't expect you to say that. So I can't move on from that without talking about it. Well, let me, let me, let me, let me explain what I mean by it's a con. I'm not talking about money in the sense of the value of money. I'm talking about the paper that you're given. We accept that this paper has a value where it's supposed to be based on... Well, I, I think you're talking about currency, fiat yeah, yeah, currency. Yeah, yes. Because money comes in many forms. Yes, yeah. you're right. Yeah. So we accept that where it's based or supposedly based on a gold value. Well, it's not anymore, is it? That's my yeah. whole point. Yeah. There is no standard. So we're yeah. accepting paper as a currency. Yeah. Now, that's frightening. Yeah. Does that mean we're all brainwashed by it because it's just accepted? Because here's the interesting thing. In some ways, you could call that the greatest con, but paradoxically, you could call that the greatest invention man has ever created. Yeah, we are, 100%. Because to have something that we all agree we will universally exchange our labour, our products, our services and our value, and to have it so liquid and free and movable and to have the whole globe, to use your words, brainwashed into trusting this thing, which has no value. Um, because people don't realise when they put their money in the bank, the bank, that money's gone. Mm -hmm. Like there is trust that that bank will give you that money when you want it. Yep. But they've already lent and invested it out. And if there's a run on that bank, that money's gone. And they'll only guarantee a fairly low amount of it. 50,000. Wow, I mean, that's gone down. Because if you remember when Northern Rock, yeah, there was nothing wrong with Northern Rock as a business. It no. was only exactly as it, you've just put it, yeah. the run on the bank to get, because people panicked. Because the lack of trust of money. Yeah. Yeah. So all money is based on universal trust. And you could say that it's a universal con. Yeah. This, I think, is why there's this big revolution towards money. When you add inflation in double digits and quantitative easing and you know the mass printing of money and you see how hard this soft money is going down, this is why everyone's really keen on crypto, isn't it? Because it's a, disrupt it's a new form of money. It's a disruption to yes. a currency we no longer trust as much. Exactly. Hmm. Here's something that's historical at this moment. The euro and the dollar is virtually pitched identical at the pound. That's never happened. Yeah. And crazy. As in the pound's very low value very, very compared low to the dollar and euro. Both of them, yeah. yeah. But the dollar is I think is at one twenty or one eighteen. Right. I think the euro is at one fifteen. Right. To the pound today. I yeah. believe. Yeah. With within a couple of points. Yeah. And I was blown away by that. I was blown blown away by that. Yeah. Now you know, I just think that, I go back to what I said, Rob, I don't think I've ever experienced stranger times than we have now. I think the Brexit and uh, COVID actually staved off a recession in, 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 our, in our economy, mm. personally. Do you mean delayed it? Yeah. 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 But you can only kick the can down the road for a certain amount of time, can't you? It's going to come back. But we've got to have a inflation 
um, in our business, inflation was, uh, was 10% um, over the last six months. So our pitch fees and our businesses are retail price index backed. So obviously our pitch fees had to go up by 10%. Now we, we had a number of residents that have complained that their pitch fee has gone up by 10%, and that's a big amount. But what they failed to recognize, the interest rate has not gone up by 10%. It's gone up by 100%. It's doubled. It was only 1%, it's now 2%. Or it was only a quarter of a percent, it's now what one and a quarter percent. What I'm saying to you is those small increases where they go, oh, it's only going up half a percent. Now hold on, it's only 0.25%. So by you putting it up 0. or uh, by you putting it up 1%, you've put it up by a thousand and twenty-five by a hundred and twenty-five percent. Just that small rate is a big rate when it's going up by 1%. Mm. It's doubling. So a mortgage payment of £500, if it's on an interest only, and you're paying half a percent, and it goes up to 1%, will automatically be £1,000. People don't realise the magnitude of those increases sound small. Mm. But they're actually double figures when it comes to real money mm. or in real currency. Mm. Alfie, you're on the rich list. Um, are there upsides and downsides of being on the rich list and therefore being much more in the public eye as being wealthy? You stand a lot more to be criticised. The begging letters come out constantly. People don't assume that you've ever worked for what you have. They just think it seems to have landed in your lap. But there's a lot of good people. There's a lot of good people in this country. We have some fantastic people. But there is a small, small amount that I get on average through social media and um, emails and such for the run of a month. There's an average of 500, and we've checked this, to 500 to 700, beg, borrow, steal, or advice. I just need 10 minutes of your time. I just need 15 minutes of your time. And we try to have somebody answer them. Because when you don't answer back, there's a percentage of them that turn nasty. And they think it's their, you know, who do you think you are? You're entitled. And what people don't realise, you never know somebody else's problems. You never had, I don't, this is straight up. I had a video sent to me on uh, WhatsApp. So they've got my number from somewhere. Of somebody hanging themselves from the stairs if I didn't give them some money. Wow. I'm really serious. Deadly serious. Like, you know, like how much more, do you, you know, the, so I understand clearly why people want to hide the fact of, um, 
out of what want to hide the fact of wealth, but it's not about, and people seem to think if you, if, if you're stated as having wealth, they think you've got it in the bank. It's not how real wealth works. Not for anybody with any business acumen. Money is a depreciating asset in the bank. So anybody, we use the term all the time that people are parking money up in assets. Happens in London all the time, where they just want to preserve the wealth because it's going down. And I live like a poor person. Not in the sense you could say, well, hold on a minute, you've just mentioned a helicopter and a this and that. And they're there. But if you ask me what I had in my wallet now, I could show you 25 pounds. You know, I run, you know, can I, what wealth does is if you're smart with it, you treat it like soldiers. Those soldiers you have and you send those soldiers out to battle. Those soldiers conquer more soldiers and bring them back. It's a game and it's an enjoyable game. People seem to familiarize wealth with cash in the bank and it's not. Indeed. Alfie, let's do a quick fire money round because one of the things I love about you is you're very open in talking about money. This is something that I'm on a mission to try and change, at least in this country, if not the world, is to be more openly um, honest about money. Just to let everyone know what's coming, I'd love to talk about, you know, you're starting your business age 14. Definitely love to talk about um, what it's like being a, a gypsy business person, undercover boss TV show, etc. cetera, um, about raising entrepreneurial kids. That's all to come. But I thought we'd do a quick fire money round. Sure. Now, in an ideal world, your answers will be about 30 seconds. But if you want to go off on some tangents, you're free. So first question, Alfie, does everyone deserve to be rich? Fantastic question. Everybody deserves a good life. Not everybody deserves to be wealthy. No. And what's the difference between a good life and being wealthy? Nobody should suffer hardship. We're in, we're, we're in a different world. Nobody should suffer hardship. That's not acceptable. Um, with wealth comes a lot of challenges. Comes a lot of challenges. And the reason that a lot of people should not be, I won't use the word deserve, but should not be wealthy, is because they're a worse person for being wealthy. And I think we should all be in a position where it makes us a better person, whether it's wealthy or poor. Can anyone be rich? Absolutely. Why? Because it's just about persistence, nothing else. Does money make you happy? Certainly makes me happy. <laughs> so why do so many people say money doesn't make you happy? Because they never really had it in the first place. <laughs> yeah. What's the most amount of money you made in a day or in one deal? Okay, difficult question, but the, when I had, I bought a, uh, a park for five million pounds. We got a planning gain on it and changed the planning and that made us a hundred million pound within six months. So that was the most that we've ever made. Today that property's worth maybe 125, maybe 130 million. Wow. What's the biggest loss you've ever had financially in a day or a deal? <sighs> biggest loss that I ever had was uh, 
£500,000, two lots of £500,000, uh, invested into some bars and nightclubs that were mismanaged and run, and we bought them from the receivers. And what we didn't know, again, involving myself in a business that I wasn't an expert in. The licenses on there had been taken back by the licensing company, uh, by the licensing authority. The company that was supposed to oversee them had gone bankrupt, which we didn't know about. Whose fault was it? Purely mine. And we lost about £550,000 on that deal. Um, another was, I loaned money to a cousin. Um, and if you want to keep your friends, keep your money. <laughs> is it true you have a Bugatti Veyron and a Bugatti Chiron, and is that the ultimate flex? Absolutely. Categorically. The, um, the Chiron, and I never thought I'd say this about a car, is a piece of art that's beyond belief. I drive the Veyron and it's built like a race car with a jet engine. If you drive the Chiron, it's like driving a Rolls Royce with a jet engine. They're just, it's a different different thing. I've got to say for me, um, that's, 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 when I bought the Chiron, which is not that long ago, I was so impressed and overwhelmed. I thought this car is cheap for what it costs. That, that sounds really crude, and but it was. And when I investigated it, they actually lose 50% on what they originally cost to make on those cars. Those cars cost £5 million, and they were selling for two and a half and three. Absolute fact. How do they make their money? Well, they didn't. But what they did was made the supercars that they're now trading off of the brand. Right. And the money that got pumped into it. Bugatti, don't forget, Bugatti has never won a race. They just built a car that set and, set and then proved it was the fastest car, but they've never won a race. They've not got the pedigree that Ferrari have got, or Lamborghini or Mercedes. So they've built something, said this is what it is, we don't need to win. Great marketing. <laughs> you said, quote, Success is like a drug. It's great when you're high, you've just got to be careful on the way down. Yep. Can you explain that? Yep, I've been both. And uh, it's, it's easier making wealth than what it is losing wealth. And what I mean by that is this, when you're making it, you're focused on your goals. And when you're focused on your goals, you've got the drive and tenacity to deal with your problems. Does that make sense? When you're losing and you can't, uh, losing and going to the point of bankruptcy, which is where I went, is the only way I can describe it is like, this is success for you. You have this rubber ball. And when you're making money and you're becoming successful, you can stretch the ball. You know, you're not supposed to, but you can just stretch it a bit and you can pull it and you've got a grip on it. You know, you might slip a little bit, but you re-grip and you re-got it. Then when the tables turn and things are going against you, 
the ball slippery and you're just trying to hold the ball in every way you can no matter how hard you grip or how lightly you grip the ball slips up and you try and grab it again you drop it and all of a sudden by doing this you're not focused on what's going on around you and that's where um, somebody said to me the other day are, are you successful and my reply to that was I'm successful at this given moment in time Tomorrow is nobody's. We can only plan for tomorrow and keep reminding ourselves that it's as easy up and it's as easy on the way down, but a lot faster with a lot more splinters and a lot more pain. No, it's more painful losing it. And, ha it. and harder to stay focused to it. Because what, fear? Yeah. Yeah. Your, your judgments off mm. calculations are all off yeah yeah definitely I felt like for probably three to six months when COVID happened I did take my off where we were going it's like you've got a ship and your job is to look into the horizon and direct the ship and then there's all this panic that there's a fire in the engine and instead of sending your team down and you staying on the deck and looking into the horizon you get down in the engine with them because you think that's what you're supposed to do and you're putting the fire yeah. out with them and all of a sudden you're in all the chaos and no one's steering the ship. And COVID, that was the best lesson for me on that. 100% Rob. I couldn't have put it better. Mm. It's absolutely spot on. It's, it's, it can, the fire that's burning on your back takes you from where you should be going. Mm. And the other thing is, everybody's looking to you. Well, what's the answer? You know, that's, that's the problem. Yeah. Yeah. That's something else because we, had, we pulled ourselves into the kitchen in our office. At the time, we had just approaching 100 staff in our office and our overheads were, you know, pretty high. Um, and we had this spreadsheet of all of our staff and we had to sit down and basically say, yeah, we have to let that person go, let that person go. We went through every name. And that was something... I'd always heard people had had to do who were very successful but never wanted to do it, hoped I'd never have to do it, wondered if I could do it. And then all of a sudden we're faced with doing it. And there's me, my MD and my business partner all there. And they're both looking at me like, Rob, what do we do? You're the positive one. You've done all the personal development. We rely on you for solutions. Well, I don't fucking know. Um, and I realised in that moment, um, if you don't know what to do, sometimes you do have to pretend that you know and show strength and solidarity with people around you. You know, right now everyone talks about you've got to be vulnerable and admit your weaknesses and, you know. Sometimes you haven't got to be vulnerable. Sometimes you've got to put strength up even when you don't really know what you're doing. Look, I, I look at business like a boxing match. You don't go in there and say, don't hit me hard, <laughs> come on. Yeah. You go in there and go, come on, give us the best you got. Yeah. Because if you don't, life isn't going to come out there easy for you. Mm. And yeah, we have to show, I think it's important to show solidarity. Even if you're scared, even if you, you don't have the answers. Yeah, look, yeah. fear does two things to us, drives us or drowns us. Mm. It's up to you to make sure it drives you. Yeah. Look, I'm, Robert, and I mean this really honestly, I am not a smart man. And everything that I talk about, and when I go and give a speech on stage, and a lot of people always want me to talk about my history of where I come from. And I really would prefer to sometimes talk about 
situations that have happened in my life. Because those situations can tell us all so much. And everybody can do the same thing, but you know what a lot of people don't do? They don't take knowledge from their own story. Something's happened, you see like you just said, the kitchen story. That's fantastic, but it's not a story. It's a lesson. It's a lesson. And that's what most people don't take. They don't take the lesson out of the situation, and turn it to a story so it's then expandable for other people to learn from. Mm. Alfie, this um good time to ask you this because another quote from you, you said this, there's nothing unusual about what I've done. Anyone can do it and I'll prove it. So you're saying there's nothing unusual about being pretty much a billionaire after humble beginnings, being born on the side of the road and starting with nothing. To me, that sounds unusual. No, it's unusual because we're held back in society. We're told it can't happen. You've just said it sounds unusual. What? No, it's not. No, it's not. Anybody, the greatest businessman that has ever walked on this planet, Jeff Bezos, did what any of us in this room could do. He sold a book online. So that's how Amazon started. People forget now that it was a bookstore, an online bookstore that sold books because he wanted to take a product. There is nothing complicated about success except for people. People. I had a business meeting about a week ago. And this is the God's honest truth. I swear this to you. This is how they meet. There was four people there, super intelligent. And I was the dumbest person in the room and genuinely the dumbest person in the room. And I came out there feeling the smartest person in the room. And I thought, I don't want to work with them. For 45 minutes, what do you think the discussion was? Politics? No but very close, <laughs> but very, very, very close. Which country should we set this business up? Because it's going to make millions and we need to do the best for the tax. We need to bring on KPMG solicitor, uh, accountants. We need to bring on Grant Thornton solicitors. They'd already spent 400,000 pounds at this meeting and they hadn't earned a single penny or even worse, tested the business. And they're deciding, and there are too many people talking about hope value. And I said at the meeting, I said, who's paying for all this? And they said the worst thing they could have said to me. It was like stabbing with a knife. They said, well, we're going to get investment. I said, so what you're saying is you don't value other people's money. I was horrified. I was horrified. I said, I'm sorry. I'm not interested. I said, well, why not? I said, you're the expert within this industry. I said, no, I might be the expert. I said, no, I certainly am. I said, but the first thing I'd be doing is testing the business. I said, making sure that all the flaws, then I'd be worried about where we were going to put it, 
I said, instead of spending best part of 400, and that's the sort of figures we were talking about, mm. by the time they'd have brought on the professional help they wanted. Now, there may be a lot of people looking at me now, criticising me and saying, well, if you're going to start a billion pound business and you're going to start this, hold on. Unless you're putting billions in, they're not billion pound businesses. They're billion pound and million pound ideas. And we know how many ideas fail every day, Rob. Mm. That blew me away. Yeah. Mm. Let's talk about being a gypsy. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm going to put two of my questions into one. Number one, are gypsies misunderstood? And have you experienced unfair discrimination for what you were born into? Look, being a gypsy is no different than being anything else. It's no different than being a West Ham supporter and an Arsenal supporter, one end of the stand and the other end of the stand. It's gypsies have, um, have they been mistreated? Yeah, actually I'd say they have to be fair. I think it's the last acceptable abuse. I don't choose to ever use the word racism because I don't accept it, I don't believe it. Do I think that people are being racist to other people? Nah, no, no, actually no. It's abuse and I've said this before. No different than calling somebody fat, thin or indifferent. If you want me to best explain what a gypsy is, a gypsy is a black man in white skin. So what do I mean by that? Is why do you why, why would a black man you why would you say you're being racist to a black man? Well they would say, is it because I'm black? And so what's that got to do with it? Are you fat? Are you ugly? That's abuse. So racism is no more than just abuse. Do I think that um, gypsies are misunderstood? Anything we don't know about is misunderstood. You just said clearly it isn't the norm for somebody from a poor background. Let's let's take the gypsy element out. Let's take the um, uh, uh, born on the side of the road. Somebody in a council house. It's unusual for them. And my thing is, why? Why? And I'll tell you exactly why. Because I don't see Boris Johnson employing anybody in Parliament from a council house background. Because for some reason it's not acceptable. Is that abuse? Yeah. It's abuse to the British people. Because do you know the smartest people you ever meet? The people that have to survive and thrive but we just choose to use people that are academic. Mm. Do you want to know one of the strangest things I ever saw in my life? And this is absolutely true, and it happens every day. And I'm saying this now, and Rob, you've seen this. There were some gypsies in court, and I was asked to go and speak on their behalf for a planning appeal. And the judge wanted an expert to come forward, and I wasn't the expert, to explain why 
the gypsies needed to live on this piece of land because their children were in school. Now, if I ask you that question, think about that logically. Who is the best person to explain why they should live on that land to the judge? Who would you say? I don't know. Surely it would be the people that live there. They're the experts. It was a professor from a college who'd studied gypsy life and he could put it in words and terminology for the judge. I was like, what? Hold on. So this guy has gone to college to study gypsy life to explain to the judge, why not just ask them? And then make, are these people telling the truth or not? Why do we need somebody to sit in the middle to put it in academic terms? Mm. Why? <laughs> That's a whole nother discussion. Um, I'll ask Matt Hancock and Nigel Farage that when I see them soon. Yeah. Uh, okay, right. I, I saw you publicly speak out in response to Jimmy Carr's joke about gypsies. I watched mm -hmm. you publicly speak out about that. Why did you choose to speak out about that? Because I felt it was a step too far. Let me say this to you. I've got nothing against jokes about gypsies. I tell most of them myself, <laughs> is the honest thing. And I'll tell you why it was a step too far. And I actually, but it wasn't, I, I get Jimmy Carr. I really, I, I get his humour. I understand it. But I thought we lived in a society where everything was equal. To me, that joke being acceptably aired on TV was basically stating gypsies are not equal. Now, um, you know, let me, let me just recant the joke, which the joke was, you know, everybody talks about the negatives of World War II and Hitler, like the Jews being gassed and killed. But nobody talks about the positives where <laughs> it's just fucking so overwhelming. The gypsies being gassed and killed. And I was like, I was like, whoa. And I just think there comes a time, and I'm not, I'm not a martyr. I'm not one of these people that really has a lot to say publicly about that sort of thing. But the next thing is, and I've been to school and seen what abuse is like from kids that, you know, I hid the fact I was a, I was a gypsy. So for him to say that that's acceptable through an audience of a thousand people that's then aired on TV, the message it sends out, it's perfectly acceptable to gas and kill gypsies. Now, okay, we know it's not, logically, but that's not what the joke and the humour is about. Coming from what I see as a peer, I know it's comedy. I'm not blind. Can you imagine if you'd have said that about Indians, blacks, Jews? If the joke was 
completely turned around on its head. But what I was interested in was the replies. And I quite enjoyed the replies. The replies were, well, don't listen to the joke if you don't get his humour. And I, I get that, Rob. I really do. And I, I go, yeah, yeah, I, I agree with you. So is it okay now if we tell jokes about every race and it's acceptable? Surely it can't be one rule for one and one rule for another. And I, I, don't, I, I don't want to be a martyr. I don't want to be one of these people that, oh, it's not right. And you know, I get his humour. Mm. I really do. Actual fact, I think it's quite funny. But take it out of the context of what it is. It's basically saying that it's okay. And we can say it's a joke. It's humour. We know that. He's a fucking comedian, for God's sake. Of course it's humour. Yeah. But the message transcends down. And when those things happen, you know, I've got thick skin. I'm sure that a lot of gypsies have. But the, the truth is, it just states... I actually think it's stated so much... I think it's stated so much more that you even felt comfortable enough to say it. Mm. Do you understand what I'm saying? Mm. But um, that's my view. Mm. It really genuinely wasn't about me uh, trying to gain 15 minutes of fame on that. I actually thought to myself, I thought, it's not so wrong. It's just not one rule for one and one rule for another. That's how I felt about mm. it. That was all. So as someone who's experienced discrimination, hardship, abuse, yet turned it all around into a positive success, what would you say to other people who are struggling but drowning a bit? They've experienced discrimination, abuse, or they're just a bit lost and they want to be successful. As someone who's been through that journey, what would you say to them? Don't hang on to the negatives or concern yourself about somebody else's view that you can move on from. Log it, understand it, know what they're thinking, but don't allow it to... Do you know the greatest sword to cut people down with? Success. <laughs> Success. Because they can't do nothing about it. They can get on their knees and they can pray for your downfall. They can do all of that. But at their time... You're taking up free rented space in their head while they're promoting you in negative or positive. But the beauty of the negative, they talk more than they do positive. How have you built this thick skin? Because I think a lot of people struggle. Inside, they want to be more, but they're just scared of rejection and ridicule and what other people think about them. Because I think we're conditioned that way. We're conditioned to be nice people. We're conditioned to do the right thing. You can't do that in life. You cannot do that. If you're a bad person, you're a bad person. You know, when people talk about um, different races of people, it's got nothing to do with the race of the people. It's the environment you're brought up in. You know, um, 
forgive me for for saying this, but um, when when you're starving, what would you do? Anything what, to eat. Anything to eat. Well, let's just relate relate that back to the aeroplane crash. And I think the film is called Alive, of very well educated, very uh, substantially minded people, all from good families, coming back. I think it was either football or rugby or skiing trip in the Alps. They crash and they openly state they started eating each other when they died. Would I do that? Yep. I would. Would I want to? No. But until you're put in that position, until you really know what you'd do, don't play the good card and keep saying, oh, of course I wouldn't. You never know. Mm. And that film, I think, teaches a lot. Do you think that's a part of being successful is trying to tap into hunger? I think if you don't stay hungry, you become a victim. If you don't stay hungry, you'll become a victim. It's a hard way to think. Mm. It's true. So let's talk about you when you were younger, because I think you started your first business age 14, and I think you almost lost it all age 20. So can you just take us on that journey of starting your business? What was it? How did you hustle and build when you were young and inexperienced? What were your challenges? Can I tell you just one small story? And it's about the difference between large business enterprise and small SMEs, okay? They are two completely different animals. I can't remember the guy's name, but he was an absolute gentleman. And I bought a hotel from him in Barbados. And I uh, wish I could remember his name because he was the chief exec of Fords of Great Britain and Dagenham. And uh, I met him uh, in Mayfair. We went down and we sat down and negotiated for the hotel. And uh, he said, I like you, Alfie. He said, you're a very unassuming type of character. He said, I wasn't sure what I was going to get when I met you. This is, by the way, this is about 10, 15 years ago. So I said, uh, I said, wasn't sure what I was going to get with you. I said, tell me about you. He said, well, so he told me his history. He was the chief exec of Ford's here in the UK. And uh, he said, well, you know, when Ford's and I left that position there, he said, so did my counterparts. And they went to Rover and they went to somewhere else and they stayed within the Ford business. He said, I wasn't going to do anything. So they rang me up. And I'm sure he won't mind me telling this story. It was a bit late now anyway. <laughs> he said, um, they rang me up and said, what are you doing? Semi-retired now. Oh, come on. You need to get into marketing. I don't know anything about marketing. Yes, you do. Just employ some people to work with you. We'll give you our marketing. He said, so I started an SME. I said, sorry. So what do you mean SME? I didn't expect somebody like him to talk about SME. Do you follow me? A small, medium-sized business. Uh, enterprise. Oh, okay. He said, my God. So what a learning experience that was. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, I had my key accounts. He said, which, you know, we did their marketing. I employed some very good people. He 
said, but I've never heard the phrase. He said, never mind really what it meant. I said, what phrase was that? He said, the check's in the post. And it really hit me of, and that's going to bring me on to my bit about where I started in my business, of the check in the post, of standard practice. You needed that two days credit. And he was from a big business where, you know, that never happened. Wasn't He didn't even know what it meant. He thought it was just a joke. And it, what he learned me was on there is where the air is breathed crisper at certain levels you're trading. Does that make sense? Because they can be much more moral. Going back to my first business, hand to mouth, hardship. And what I will say this to you is the government, the reason we don't have the entrepreneurs that we do here is solely and solely and wholly down to our government. If you don't work, you get paid. You get to sign on and you get your rent paid. It may not be enough to live on. It may put you on the poverty's door, but you get it for free. That's it. And a lot of people say, well, we've all paid our dues. We're all paying the dues. You get it for free. But when you're self-employed and you're working and you don't get paid, you starve. Something, somewhere in your business, in your home, has got to go. That might be the food in the cupboard. It might be you can't buy the shopping that week. And it might be you don't pay the electric bill that week or that month. There are a mountain of things that you do in businesses to get that business to survive, not to thrive. That takes a whole, that's a whole different game. So for me, yeah, it, it, I, I've seen that. And um, even up to like when I bought my very first park, I scrimped and scraped so much to pay for it. And I had a, uh, I think I had a half a million pound borrowing. Um, and the park cost 1.7 million pound or whatever it was, Rob. Um, I went without buying shopping for a month. You might think, well, how much were you spending on shopping? Not a lot. A couple of hundred could a week. But that thousand pounds meant more going in to pay the surveyor and I'd eat baked beans. And that's how, and it, and it was that. That's not get the violin out. Yeah. That's how it was. You know, when when I go back to the first business that I did with, with cars, hard business, uh, very hard business. And car dealers, you know, some people don't realise that the difficulty they've got, they're buying a second-hand car that they don't know, that they then have to provide a warranty for. And they don't know any more about that car than the next man. Most car dealers I know wouldn't know anything about mechanics, no more than I would. They're a car dealer. Mechanics is something different. And that's a, diffi that's a difficult job, and that's why I stuck with trading vehicles, you know, and just putting them in auctions, because... I didn't know what I was buying, 
didn't really know what I was selling. All I knew was the value of the asset and the product I was buying. It was a product. Nothing more, nothing less. Um, I did very well at it, though. Um, was, um, was it, what was difficult about it? Driving at three o'clock in the morning, catching a train, 12 o'clock at night, missing the trains. Do you understand what I'm saying? Having to thumb a lift down the motorway because I'd missed the train, I had to get to the auction the next day. The check bouncing in the auction, so then they wouldn't release your vehicles because your money hadn't cleared in your own bank account. So you're trying to juggle money to pay this, you know? Mm. There's a mountain of stuff. It sounds like I'm feeling sorry for you. <laughs> I'm not. I'm just saying they're the hardships you that young businesses go through. Don't bitch about it. This is the life we chose. Mm. Should we do our final quick fire round? Fire away. Let's do it. What's the best thing you learned about selling, selling secondhand cars? Sell it as if you were buying it. Never sell to a person, and I hear that all the time. Sell to yourself, because if you'd buy it, most people will too. Should more disputes be settled by a good old fashioned bare knuckle fight? No, no. More disputes should be settled by giving people time to think. What's your biggest failure? Every day. <laughs> <laughs> my biggest failure. My biggest failure. Not having a balanced life. Not having a balanced life. I'm committed to work, committed to business. Not giving enough time to loved ones and people around me. Biggest failure is that. What's your biggest success? That has changed over the years. So if you asked me that last year, I would have given you a different answer. If you'd have asked me the year before, I'd have given you a different answer. But what I have learned in the last year, which is my biggest success, is um, learning to grow with different people. Not always the same people that you need. Sometimes, and we use the phrase, certain people are sent to teach you a lesson. You really need those people because the ones that teach you small lessons allow you to avoid the people that would have hurt you in a bad way. That makes sense? Yes, it does. And if Harry is listening, who's our um, head of the video and audio of the Disruptors podcast, He's going to hate me for saying this, but I'm going to say it. He's got a motorbike and I've been begging him to sell it because I want him alive and I want him here with me forever. And he took a corner too fast and slid off and he's been in hospital and he's off for a week and he's lucky he didn't get squashed. Sometimes it's the smallest. Exactly. That could be the best lesson of his life. Harry, sell the freaking motorbike. <laughs> What's the biggest risk you've ever taken? Okay. I take risks... I take calculated risks every month. And the biggest risk that I've ever taken, are we talking personally or business? Or you want Let's both? have one of each. I want both. I'm greedy. Okay. Biggest risk I ever took in my life was going back to the helicopter and pulling the pilot out while the blades were still spinning. 
because that could have killed me. Uh, but I, I, I did it instinctively as opposed to, so that's on a personal level. And the biggest risk I would say that I take, even today, and I'm 52, when I do business, I'm all in. I put my house on the line, I'm all in. I put my shirt on the line. If it goes and it goes wrong, it all goes. I don't, I'm no half measures. They're the biggest risks and they're real. They're real. What's your biggest regret? I don't have any regrets. I really don't because we can't change the past. If you want to say what's the biggest lesson that I've learned, it would be try your hardest, try your hardest to stay true to yourself because so many people will convince you to be true to them. What do you think of YouTubers like Logan Paul, Jake Paul, KSI fighting professional boxers nowadays? Absolutely, unbelievably fantastic. I love what they're doing. I think it's great. I applaud them beyond belief, but doesn't it just go to show how all fake we are? So you love it, but it's fake. What do you mean by that? Hold on a minute. He is not a professional fighter, but yet he's filling arenas. I applaud this man for his marketing skill, and I have nothing but admiration for him. But I look at myself and go, hold on a minute. I'm watching a YouTuber that wants to fight Floyd Mayweather. I know what's going to happen, but yeah, I still watch it. <laughs> <laughs> do you think in a fight you could take out these YouTubers? Do you know, look, let me tell you something. In boxing, anything can happen. And here's one of the things that I will genuinely tell you. At, 22, at 20 years old, I could have a fight. Today, if you saw me on the bag, I look like I can have a fight. There's a lot of difference from 20 to 52. <laughs> and age does not only slow people up, but your mindset is completely different. It's a great question. Do you mind if I just take it slightly off the mark? Sure. Right. Peter Ebden, the world snooker champion, is a very good friend of mine. He's a very, very astute person, you know, um, attentive. In, in his mindset of what he does. And uh, I'd go as far to say, on a academic level of reading situations, he's one of the greatest snooker players ever to exist. That's a big thing to say when we've got people like Ronnie O'Sullivan that is just a natural beyond belief. What many people don't know about uh, Peter Ebden is he's virtually deaf in one ear. And he's, um, uh, his eyesight is colourblind. So he has to remember where the balls are and he's slightly deaf in one ear, so he's off balance. So he's got to be better than, 50% better than anybody else to get to their 100%. So for me, but a question I asked him, he told me the story and I was like, wow, okay. 
I said, question, Peter. What is it that snooker players don't continue just to get better? Why is it they get to 35 and all of a sudden there, he said, nerves. He said, you start to overthink, am I going to miss this shot? That's what happens with age. And that's called experience, which, it, which happens to all of us. Start to analyse your deals. Now, in certain things, that makes good sense. The old experience will come into play. But when you're doing certain other businesses, you know, get in, mate, before it's too late. So I try my hardest to live a, a virile life, a young life, not for my body, but for my mind. Sorry if that was a long. Nothing to be sorry about. Arnold Schwarzenegger said, and I'll quote, my kids will never have the same hunger for success as me. And the reason he said that is because they didn't come from absolutely nothing. Your son, Alfie Best Jr. is doing really well. Do you agree with Arnie? Have you got anything to say on this? I think it's what we instill in our kids. And I think we've had several discussions about this, Rob, about is there a right way or a wrong way? It's one of the most difficult and challenging subjects to talk about. I think that it is imperative that our kids know hardship that our kids know the word no, can't, we haven't got it. Because the one thing that I have learned is you need to know every word and you need to know what every word means in the vocabulary dictionary. Because if you don't, someone's going to come along and teach it to you. So for me, Alfie was brought up hard. Alfie's doing great. Touch wood. I've, I've got to be honest with you. I feel at this moment in time, he's a success. Let's see where he is next year. That's not me being hard. That's me trying to keep him humble. And that's me trying to say to him, you know, you can do anything you want. I've told you this before, but I just want to re- it just in case somebody didn't watch the last podcast but this is so important where kids are concerned me and my son are in vegas we're walking down the strip alfie's five or six years old and he looks up and treasure island's there and the hotel he said dad i'm gonna buy that when i get a bit older i went good boy I went spot on i went and you will I said, don't worry about that. I said, you'll get that. I said, that is that what you want? And you'll get it. And uh, 15 years later, he's 20 years old or whatever it is, 22 years old, whatever we use, we go out to the Tyson Fury's fight. We're walking down the strip. And I was looked at the hotel and I remembered the conversation. He looked at me at the exact moment. Went, do you remember? He said, I went, I do. So I remember the conversation, it brought a rise smile to my face. He went, what a pipe dream that was. He said, I didn't realise how hard it was to make money, he said then. I went, stop. You can do it. 
Don't let anybody ever tell you you can't. But that conversation learned me something. Do you know what it was? How much life and society knocks the stuffing out of you to stop you and make you think you can't do it. Thinking we can do it is one thing. Trying to do it is the next thing. But the most important thing is not stopping when you get knocked down. That you keep chipping away. You can break a rock with a toffee hammer. Doesn't matter what hammer you're given in life, it's up to you how you use it. So to everyone listening and watching, it must, it must have been, what, four odd years ago, came down to see you? And um, so definitely everyone go and listen and watch our first episode. I tried to talk about some different things. Back then, it, my show was called The Disruptive Entrepreneur. Now it's Disruptors, and we're kind of trying to reach a, a broader audience and have variety with all the stuff that's going on in the world. So what does that word disruptive mean to you? It means making a difference. And I know many people would see it differently, like shaking up the di industries within and you know, disrupting what's going on. I don't think it's disruptive. I don't. What you're doing is making a difference, is bringing out from people. And look, I say this to Rob's audience. Rob's done some fantastic podcasts, which I've watched, and learned an awful lot from. And that's not me praising Rob up because he's sitting here. They're facts. So when you watch these podcasts, don't watch them just to view them. Watch them to learn from them. Because skill set starts from the knowledge we're given. Alfie, look, I know you're a really busy guy. <laughs> you're a massive empire. Really grateful for you. You walked here. I did. You walked here from Mayfair. Um, Alfie, thanks so much for being on the show. Haven't you heard the fuel prices like <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs>